Well, final good morning to all of you. My name is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here at Mill City. Special welcome to people who are visiting. I see a few new faces. We're really glad to have you. And if I haven't met you yet, I would love to do that at some point. Just catch me. I genuinely would love to meet you. Um, you might have to tell me your name like three times for me to remember, but it's, it's an issue that I have. So I'm working on it. Pray for me. Um, we are in a conversation right now, starting last week, and we're going to have it for most of the fall, I think, called Going Public. Going Public. And I want to let you in a little bit under the hood here when it comes to the teaching team here at Mill City. So we, we have a group of people who spend time uh, listening to all of you, listening to the neighborhood, to what's going on in culture, and most importantly, listening to God as to what it is that we should talk about every week here on Sundays uh, from God's Word and from the Bible. And so there's a group of us who are praying about that, and I have to admit that this summer, as we were thinking about this fall, was one of the most challenging times for us to decide what is it exactly that God wants us to step into together as a community? Because uh, clearly, it's a very tense time in our world, in our culture. And we had this question, how do we help the Mill City community engage with this election season and all the crazy political fireballs flying through the air? Because you, you, you've probably noticed you can't help but get hit in the side of the head by one of those crazy political fireballs. And so we had this genuine question. And there is a little bit of a temptation to avoid it, if I'm going to be honest. Just a thought of maybe we can just avoid the whole thing. You know, people can deal with that. And maybe here we'll talk about, I don't know, the Psalms or something, right? Like we could have a great conversation about being led by still waters and having our souls restored or something like that. And that would be really wonderful, right? I mean, we could get it totally tranquil up in here and people would be feeling good. And I'm not even saying that's a bad thing right now. Like finding some tranquil space might be a necessity to not lose your mind in the next few months, okay? But what I kept realizing is, like, if I was being honest, if we were to let God lead us to peaceful waters <laughs> in this space, I just feel as though uh, it's like donkeys and elephants would be, like, jumping around in the stream, butting heads with each other. Sorry about the image, but it was in my head, and I had to let it out. Like, that's what I pictured. Like, we're trying to, to have this peace, but this is what's going on, right? This is what it feels like to me, that everywhere you go, you just can't, you can't escape it. This is what's happening. And right now, there's this tense political environment, but I think there's lots of tensions going on right now in addition to that. And it's kind of like, I would put it like the air that we're breathing right now. So we decided that we were going to just step towards it and just have a frank conversation about what does it mean then for us in the midst of this season to follow Jesus as public disciples, as people who follow Jesus, not just in isolation or not just within Christian community, but as people who live in the public sphere. So we're asking these questions. How can we think about being public disciples of Jesus? How did Jesus engage publicly? And then maybe most importantly, how is God inviting us in the 21st century to engage publicly? How is God inviting us in the 21st century to engage publicly? So in the next few months, we're going to talk about this in a very tangible way and about how we can be public followers of Jesus. Because here's the thing. Maybe this is the most important thing in my mind that we can imagine as we're prepping for this conversation. There's going to be an opportunity to vote in November 8th. If you didn't know that, that's when it is. And I think voting is important. So this whole time we're having this conversation, please know nobody's belittling that reality that voting is an important part of being a part of our community. There's going to be boxes that are going to be checked, and those boxes will have an impact, definitely. But maybe the core hope that we have for all of you is to recognize that you have chances every day, all the time, not always in big, huge ways, but in the greater 
it to have a greater impact publicly than you will on that day when you vote in November. You have a, a chances every day, all the time, to make a greater impact every day than you will on that one day in November. And it's not always going to be in big, flashy ways that anybody notices. It's not going to make the headlines of CNN. But it is going to make an impact in your ordinary spaces, in ordinary ways, in your everyday spaces. So that's kind of the core foundation of this conversation that we're having. We believe that Jesus modeled this for us and that God is still inviting us, just as Jesus did, to live as public disciples in the world that God loves. Because God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to do that. So my hope is that we can all agree that we're just going to do our best here, right? Because there's no way to be a public disciple perfectly. It is so hard. And in my mind, this is one of the, the hardest times in my three decades on this earth to think about how do we be public disciples. So this isn't about shame. This is a shame-free zone. This is just about doing the best we can. Can we do that together? We have this conversation? Great. So how can we engage in ways that honor God and create space where other people could encounter Jesus? These are the two questions that Mike asked last week, foundational questions. When we're thinking about the ways in which we engage, is this going to honor God? Would this create a space where people could encounter Jesus? Two important questions. So I realize how difficult this is uh, personally. I've thought about this a lot on a personal level. I feel like when the political conversation is going on, especially online, it looks something like this. Put this, this slide up for me, Adam. Okay, this is the pie ch chart of political arguments on Facebook. The blue is when you change your mind, and the green is when they change their mind, and red is no one changes anything and everyone's ticked. Anybody, does that seem familiar to anyone else? Yeah, I'm, I spend, I will admit, probably too much time on Facebook, okay? That's not shocking to anybody who knows me. Um, but when you all, y'all post things about stuff, either I agree with you more than, at, and I already agreed with you, and now I just agree even more, or I'm like, meh. Right? I mean, I just, it's not a thing. It doesn't make any sense. But it's the way that we're, we're constantly engaging. And we're, it's like we're being sucked into this, like, polarized vortex where you can't escape it. And there's some sort of, like, bizarre world where there's only two options for everything. Right? There's, like, vanilla and chocolate and Apple and Android and Vikings and Packers. And there's no other options. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And it feels like there's this place where this dualistic thinking like reigns supreme and we can't get away from it. And there's this expectation to be on this side or this side, or you need to be totally for this or totally against this, but you can't find any space in between. And I've wondered if we've lost any sense that there might be some tension in the space between some of these things. Because when we talk about Jesus' life in public, we see something very different, don't we? We see something very different than the dualism and the polarized thoughts and these types of things. He doesn't let anybody box him in. You don't see Jesus throwing like political darts at people, except for maybe the religious elite and the, the people who are considered self-righteous, but that's a different sermon. Mike spoke last week about the political realities of Jesus' day. In the first century in the Roman Empire, uh, Mike was explaining it's not that different than some of the tensions we're experiencing today. And Jesus lived and did his life and ministry in this way. And so it brings up this question, well, how did Jesus deal with this? What did Jesus' public life look like in the midst of the tension and the many things that were going on? So today, to look at that, I want to look at what I would say is a very important theme that we see throughout Jesus' life. And that theme is the theme of invitation. 
the theme of invitation that we see in Jesus' life and ministry. So kind of get ready to do a little bit of like a flyover of the Gospels, and we're going to look at the Gospel story and Jesus' life and what Jesus did and what he said and how this theme of invitation is throughout his entire story, and I would say even radical invitation. And so last week, we started with the first miracle of Jesus. Those of you who are here, you remember Michael talked about the first time that Jesus did a miracle publicly. In a sense, it was the first time he was uh, doing ministry publicly in a way that people would be able to see it. And so just a little bit of a refresher, it's at a wedding banquet where Jesus turns tons of water into tons of wine. And at first, kind of upon first read, you might think, okay, this is a story about a really cool party trick where uh, Jesus' mom kind of coerces him into doing this, this miracle so that the party host won't be embarrassed because it's really embarrassing to run out of wine before the end of the wedding. And I want to suggest today that this story is so much more than that. It is way, way more than that. This is Jesus beginning his ministry with one of the most significant foreshadowing moments of the Gospels. So foreshadowing. So the beginning of the story, reflecting something about the end, right? You know, like in James Bond movies when Q gives James Bond like all of these like tools and, and cool weapons and cool cars and then he's never using them until the end, right? It's foreshadowing. Or like in Star Wars Empire Strikes Back when uh, Luke's like fighting with Darth Vader, kind of like this vision of it and then he sees his own face in Darth Vader's mask. Spoil alert, he's your dad. Right? So it's foreshadowing. You know what that means. Okay. I'm not trying to belittle anybody. But Jesus' first miracle is foreshadowing in a significant way the end of the story. Very significantly. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. If you have a Bible, you can look it up. I just want to read this for you. Revelation is this apocalyptic vision that's given to uh, Jesus' disciple John through an angel when he's actually being exiled out into a, an island. And this, this, this vision is full of this future hope. It's symbolism and metaphor. And I just want to read a tiny part of it, Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Pay attention to this theme that I'm talking about here. This is what John says. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The lamb is Jesus in this and the, the bride is God's people. So for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So Jesus' first miracle is not a cheap party trick, you guys. This is so huge because it is a strong nod towards this future banquet, this wedding and feast imagery and metaphor, which represents the fullness of the kingdom of God. And everyone who is invited to that is blessed, it says there in Revelation 19. And Jesus throughout his entire ministry makes something very clear. Everyone who wants to be invited is invited to that banquet. Everyone, if they want to come. In the book of Matthew and Luke, Jesus talks about a wedding banquet multiple times. He's, once again, every time he brings that up, pay attention, because he's foreshadowing the future hope when he says that. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. 
And when people are invited and some people turn down the invitation, the king sends out the servants and says, invite anybody who wants to come. In one of the versions of the stories, it says that the king says, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Everyone is invited to the wedding banquet. So are you seeing this metaphor here connected with that initial miracle? This great feast where there's enough for everyone and everyone has what they need and they certainly do not run out of wine. Jesus' kingdom is one where no one is without, where the abundance of God and the, what God gives is enough for everything that anyone would need and then some. Jesus was making this point in his first miracle. But this theme of invitation goes even further, specifically with the way that Jesus is um, living out his life and ministry. The metaphor of the banquet is key. You see that, that thread throughout the whole story. But Jesus is inviting people into his relational space. He invites himself into their relational space often. And every time he does it, almost every time, he gets criticized publicly. And I think about that and how, how terrified I am of being criticized publicly. But every time Jesus enters into the relational space of others or welcomes them into his, it seems like he gets criticized. Jesus, you aren't supposed to go to that person's house. Don't you realize the politics around here? We don't go to their house. We don't have conversations with them. Like in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus is, invites himself, pretty much, over to the home of one of the tax collectors named Levi, and he's there and he, uh, a tax collector would have been not the person that you should go spend time with because according to most of Jewish community, the tax collectors, who often were Jewish, were uh, political opportunists. They were people who were going to take uh, their opportunity in the midst of this very um, controlling Roman Empire and they were going to get uh, paid extra by taking taxes and being political opportunists who got paid by cheating other people within their family, within the Jews. And so Levi, not only is he there, he invites other tax collectors over for dinner. And then he invites other people who would be considered the outgroup, the sinners, the people who should not be invited to a dinner like that. And the devout religious Jews would suggest that those people are the outgroup. And most likely among those people eating with them in that story in Matthew 9, most scholars think that there would have been women there who were victims of prostitution. Why? because they were living into the culture and Roman style banquets usually included women who came for after dinner entertainment, if you know what I'm saying by that. And so here they're having this meal and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they, they see where Jesus is eating, where he's eating, who he's eating with, and they are like, why would Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? They publicly declare. And here is this idea that the problem with eating with these people is that they are considered unclean. You shouldn't even touch them. What if you're reaching for the bread at the same time and you accidentally touch one of those women? You accidentally get too much into the space of one of those sinners. And this was the public ridicule. And Levi later is called Matthew because he becomes one of Jesus' closest disciples and most devout followers. But here's the thing, Jesus, I mean, he, he, he'll invite himself to the tax collector's house, but he'll invite himself over to the self-righteous Pharisee's house too, the religious leader or Pharisees. Uh, he'll, he'll invite over himself over there and he'll eat with them too. He invites Nicodemus at one point, a Pharisee, to consider allowing his entire life to be changed. And Nicodemus later chooses, by the time Jesus' death and resurrection happens, he chooses to be a follower of Jesus. 
Jesus extended what would have been at that time a radical invitation to women in general. There were so many settings where he was inviting them into a relationship with him where this was turning the script upside down, where he was engaging in a way that would have been totally countercultural and, and affirming the humanity within women. He spoke to women when other people wouldn't have. He advocated for them when other people would have let them be stoned. He stepped into that and he invited them to sit as his, at his feet as disciples. We see that in the text that women sat at his feet as disciples. We must understand that no rabbi did that, ever. They would never do that at the risk of losing their standing amongst the other rabbis. Jesus set free Mary Magdalene, who had a demonized, who was demonized, it says, by seven demons, and then all these other women, it says, who had these diseases who would have been considered unclean even to touch. Did you know that if one of these women had a disease, you couldn't even sit in a chair that she had already sat in? Like, that is the kind of stuff that we're talking about here, of this in and this out group and the people who could not be touched. And I could go on and on. Jesus invited children to come to him who were considered relatively worthless and of little value in society at that time. Jesus invited lepers and those who had contagious diseases to come to him, and he touched them, and he healed them. And he spoke clearly of the care of that needed to be done for the poor and the widowed and people who were orphaned and the outcast. Jesus got into their relational space. He learned their name. He understood their story. I mean, almost every time, that's how Jesus begins an engagement one-on-one -on -one with somebody, by expressing, since he's God, I know you. I know your story. He engages with them as a person, not as the categories placed upon them. It's not that greedy tax collector that Jesus is with. It's Matthew. It's not that pious religious leader that Jesus invited to follow him. It's Nicodemus. It's not that impure demonized woman that is one of Jesus' disciples. It's Mary. Jesus obliterated categorical and dualistic thinking. He radically invited people into his relational space and radically invited him into their relational space, which is bold. And when people came near Jesus, they were never the same. You notice that when you read those stories? Not all of them choose to follow him. Not all of them decide to surrender their life and become a follower of Jesus, but nobody is left unchanged. The invitation was clearly open to anyone, whether they chose to follow or not. So then, to live as a public disciple, we get to be the people of radical invitation to relationship. Radical invitation to relationship. Now, we don't have to all grow throwing parties and banquets, and if anyone wants to try and you haven't done it before, we'll hook you up with Michelle Brask and she'll show you how it's done. But you don't have to do that. We can begin with a name and a story and perhaps one meal. This is what helps us, I wanna suggest, Move from this, this categorical thinking that causes us to dehumanize other people. When we, when we put people in categories, it causes us to dehumanize them. This is just kind of a sociological reality. We reduce people who are precious to God to merely those people. And I really, myself included, do not feel above this, especially right now. In doing so, in calling people those people and expressing that, whether we say it out loud or feel it in our hearts, Sometimes we fail to truly treat them as people at all or think of them as people at all. 
So it honors and brings glory to God when we extend radical invitation just like Jesus did. It offers a chance for others to see Jesus and perhaps experience his love through us because we've received so much of God's love that it overflows out of us onto the lives of the people around us. And I think you'd agree with me, the invitation is most radical when it's extended to somebody different than you, isn't it? And maybe even more radical when you already know you disagree with that person <laughs> in which you're going to extend relationship to. Yes, even the person who is voting for you, who you think is the wrong person. It's, that's what radical means, friends. Because it's not about agreement. It's about invitation. It's not about agreement. It's about invitation. That is clear in Jesus' life, isn't it? The theme of invitation is at the center of our lives as public disciples. And when we feel, this is a good litmus test, when you feel a resistance towards relationship, that should give you pause. At least question why. What's happening in my heart? What's happening as a person who follows the God of the universe that I'm resisting relationship with this group of people or that individual, whatever it might be? Offering relationship is seeing the humanity in the other person to say, this person is made in the image of God. This is a person who is invited to the banquet of King Jesus and doesn't deserve that invitation any more or less than any of us. We are all invited. We are all invited. I think it would be a good time for me to confess that there's a group of people that I've been lumping together in my mind and heart, and it's this group of people here in the city who always talk about how, like, this talk about the neighborhood really negatively, okay? They're always talking about how things are not going well in the neighborhood. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. But there are people who say, everything is changing. Northeast is just not how it used to be. Or, like, Minneapolis is just not the good old days. And oftentimes, I think part of the reason I have so much tension with this group of people is that I think that these folks are indirectly or sometimes directly referring to increased diversity in our neighborhood, and they're having a hard time with that. And so they get on these like online groups and things, and you know you shouldn't read them if they make you upset, but you know, they get on the online things and they're like freaking out about this and that and the other thing and how scary the neighborhood is getting. And they go on and they're complaining over and over. And I know things aren't perfect here in Minneapolis, obviously. I mean, I'll be the first one to say that there's some serious concerns happening. However, this deficit mentality, this fear mentality, and the seemingly inability to appreciate the diversity, the beauty that diversity offers, drives me nuts. Because it's not that unsafe. Those are fireworks, people, not gunshots. Seriously, that's what happens. Like, were those gunshots on the, it's for, anyway. If it bothers you that much, you probably shouldn't read it, and I get that. So, the other day I went so far as to call this group of people neighborhood Pharisees. So I'm really sorry if you have been guilty of some of the things I just said, but I, I started name calling. I called them neighborhood Pharisees. And now I have a pretty significant problem because I moved neighborhoods about four months ago and a ton of my neighbors are neighborhood Pharisees. That's where they've all been, in Marshall Terrace, it turns out. And no, I'm serious. Um, this is where they are. The Neighborhood Association is not just called Marshall Terrace Neighborhood Association, like all 13 other neighborhood associations. It's called the Concerned Citizens of Marshall Terrace. And they are concerned. Like they are very concerned about a lot of things. And when there's nothing that they can think of to be concerned about, they're concerned about the feral cats, of which there are in our neighborhood. And one of our staff members was bit. She's fine. But the point is, <laughs> there's other good things happening in the neighborhood. So 
Anyway, this is the problem. And I felt super convicted two weeks ago because I realized that I was, I am being completely honest, intentionally in avoiding some of my neighbors because of this, because their attitude was annoying to me. And because they keep offering me hostas, you know, those leafy plants. And the, I don't want your hostas. Like, I just don't. Anyway, clearly, <laughs> they're trying to be of service and be a good neighbor, but then they're talking about this concerns. And anyway, I'm up here all the time telling you guys that you're supposed to love your neighbors, get to know your neighbors, and I'm intentionally avoiding mine. So conviction happened, and I reluctantly took this time last week not to rush into my house when I saw some of them, but stay in the yard, and I had a good conversation with my neighbor Penny. Penny and Patty, they're sisters. They live next door. They're a little concerned. And... Uh, in the conversation I had with Penny, she opened up to me about uh, caring for her father who's ill and how the two of them have been trying to care for him in the place that he's living. And as she shared her story, I felt my heart softening and my eyes looking and seeing her, probably for the first time if I'm honest, and seeing her humanity. She isn't a neighborhood Pharisee. She's my neighbor Penny who's lived there her whole life. This is, this is exactly one of the main things that I love about our missional communities and why we're doing what we're doing here. These are groups of people at Mill City that exist to be extended families on mission. And if you haven't been a part of one, let me tell you, there is one actual goal that all the missional communities have, and that is to invite. Their goal is to radically extend invitation. That is what they're doing. They're, they invite other people into their relational space and they invite them, themselves into the relational space of others, not in an awkward, weird way, but in a polite way. And they step into these relationships that are reciprocal. It's not an us and them reality. It is a group of people that their mission focuses on that they want to become one with. Not to continue to maintain an us and them mentality to that. And how does that start? It starts with names and stories and eating together. because. It's really not, that's really what most of them do, is learn people's names and stories and eat together. That's kind of the point of missional community. It's not, it's not that much crazier than that. So if you think about it this way, for our refugee-focused missional community, it's not just the, the mass refugee crisis, right? It's a family, Ifra and Yasser, who they spend time with. For Ren community, it's not merely Chinese students with an extremely different background than many in the group from our church. It's exploring the North Shore with Wei and Lang Lang, people. For Restore Community, it's not those homeless people, right? It's Sue and David and Nathan becoming their friends. For Nuestro Puente, who builds bridges with the Latino population, it's people with names and stories like Victor and Daisy who are planning a church for Latinos in North Minneapolis. For Devoted MC, it's not just strippers and sex workers, those people, but Molly and Thomasina and Marissa. Missional communities are communities of invitation. They aren't exclusive. Mill City Church should be a community of invitation. It's not exclusive. When we get to know the names and the stories of other people, their humanity is restored and so is ours. Because here's the thing, those judgments and those perceptions in our hearts that dehumanize the other people are dehumanizing us as well. And when we extend that relationship and we engage in that, even if it's hard, even if we disagree, even if there's tension, we are restoring humanity to them and to ourselves. It's not 
I, and I do think this is important, it's not to say that categories never matter. Oftentimes they're really helpful, especially to understand culture. Culture is beautiful and we should try to understand cultures as, as a group and what they represent and what their history is. Culture is important. It's also important to pay attention to what I would call social constructs or groups that are made socially that aren't necessarily real but are constructed in our society, which makes them real. And sometimes those constructs are harmful and should be, we should participate with dismantling those types of constructs. So it's not to say that categories never matter or that groups never matter or there's not something about having a group identity because there is. I'm not advocating for radical in individualism, but radical invitation. God invites us to be people of invitation that goes beyond category. God invites us to be people of invitation that goes beyond category. Because this brings glory to God and it offers potential for others to know Jesus. And I'm not just saying that. I have actually seen that happen. I have seen how radical invitation brings glory to God and creates a space where people do, as God leads them, and as we create that space, come to know Jesus, to experience the freedom that so many of us have had in a relationship with Jesus. So uh, the application to this, this talk is pretty simple. It's, it's just to have a conversation with someone different than you this week. It's to maybe, okay, maybe this week, if you're a Republican, it's take a Democrat out to lunch week, okay? And if you're a Democrat, it's take a Republican out to lunch week and listen to them. Huh, listen to them. Start there, listen. Or what group is it for you? Like my neighborhood Pharisees, I'm gonna really try to be a little more patient and not to be so annoyed about the hostas. But what is it for you? We all know what those groups are. Most of us have multiple of them. Can we learn a new name? Can we get a story? Can we listen? Can we share our story? Can we invite others into our relational space? Can we bold and be bold enough to invite ourselves into their relational space? I know some of you who have invited yourself over to your neighbor's house for dinner, and it's actually gone really great. So it's, it happens. Are we willing, in the midst of those conversations, like we talked about last week, just to be honest, that we're followers of Jesus? We're public disciples. That's not always easy, but it's, what, it's who we are. It's just being honest and being honest and real and transparent and vulnerable is something I think our community is really thirsty for. I'm gonna have the band come back up as I kind of wrap this up. There are going to be some important votes that are gonna be cast on November 8th. And a whole bunch of people inevitably are gonna be really disappointed on November 9th, aren't they? That's gonna be real. So, also, would you cast your vote for the humanity of somebody different than you by getting to know their name? Would you cast your vote for the humanity of somebody by honoring them with their story and extending yours to them? By choosing to listen and choosing to love. Let's honor God by being known as people who are followers of Jesus by our love. As Jesus said, that's how people will know who we are. Let's extend opportunities for those to experience the love of Jesus by our relationship, by our words, by our practices of invitation, in our families, as individuals, as missional communities, as a church. So there's one last thought that I have um, as we go into this time of worship. Um, if you feel that you are seriously struggling, struggling with ex trying to extend this type of radical invitation, because it's not easy, then perhaps we've lost touch with the reality that God has extended such a radical invitation to each one of us. The same Jesus who ate with the sinners and the prostitutes and the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the tax collectors has pulled a seat up to the table for you. 
and for me. God has invited us to the banquet of King Jesus, and an invitation that we can't earn. You can't sign up for that. God's offered an invitation for unconditional love and salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that is an invitation that we do not deserve. You see, if we could grasp the depth of how outrageous, you guys, outrageous the invitation is that God extends to us, I don't think we could help but extend it to other people. We are going to go into this time of worship, and maybe for some of us, where we're at is that we need to start today with accepting in a new and fresh way the radical invitation of God through Jesus. Stepping into the relational space that the God of the universe has created for you and me to be in relationship with him. It doesn't get much more radical than that. It's only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. And for that we worship and for that we offer ourselves completely. So let's stand and sing and offer our hearts to a God who has moved towards us as we move towards him in worship. There is no greater way to offer ourselves back to God than by going out of this place into our everyday spaces and honoring God by looking for what God is doing in those spaces and participating with him. That is the greatest way we can offer ourselves back as living sacrifices, as ones who have received the greatest invitation that has ever been given to any of us. So can I send you out with that blessing this morning? May you be sent from this place with eyes wide open to what God is doing around you and ears ready to hear God's voice so that you can participate with Jesus in extending the most radical invitation that has ever been extended. And may you experience that same invitation daily that God extends to each one of you. Amen.